Well, good morning. Well, Pastor Tim and uh, John and his family taking some vacation time uh, this weekend, and so uh, I get the opportunity to begin a brand new series entitled Fired Up. And this series will take us through the balance of the summer as different staff will be sharing from God's Word. And so we begin with the series this morning, Fired Up. And so are you fired up? Okay, are you fired up? Amen. Well, you know, I was talking with a friend who's a missionary in India. And he was telling me of all the amazing things that God is doing among the Hindus where he serves. But one of the things he mentioned to me was the fact that believers there, when sharing their faith, they don't use the word Christian. And the reason is because it has so much negative baggage attached to it. I mean, the reason they don't use that term is because they don't like the term because of the negative baggage. Because the typical Hindu will look at America as being a Christian nation. And they quickly conclude that if that is Christianity, they don't want any part of it. Blatant sexual immorality, homosexuality, materialism, greed, hatred, violence, arrogance. I mean, who could blame them for having that perception of America? Surveys reveal that 75% of Americans say that they are Christians. Three out of four individuals in the United States claim some form of religious allegiance to Jesus. Three out of four. And yet the question is, where's the evidence of that allegiance to Jesus Christ? Which raises a very important question. What is genuine Christianity? Is it simply having some casual belief in Jesus? Or is it something more than that? Well, that's the question that I want to consider this morning. And and the way that I want to answer that is to go directly to the source, Jesus himself. How did Jesus answer the question? How did Jesus describe those that would be a part of his movement? He didn't use the word Christian. He used a very different word. And it's the word disciple. Jesus calls us to be his disciples. A disciple is a follower, an apprentice, a learner. It's someone whose life is centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is after. He is after disciples. Now, there aren't some levels of discipleship that Jesus was making reference to. There aren't some three-tiered sort of concepts or ideas of discipleship where you are able to choose from one of the various levels of discipleship where maybe you're fully in, fully passionate, fully committed 100% to Jesus Christ or you have another level of discipleship where you're like 75% in and you know you don't want to take this Jesus thing too seriously or you're just not even interested and you're not even a disciple in Jesus mind there were not three tiers or three levels of discipleship there was only one level of discipleship Jesus is inviting us to one experience and that's called discipleship that's it and you don't get to choose so what is that experience that Jesus is calling us to so what does that look like well in the gospel of John we have recorded for us an incredibly powerful image of discipleship that is extremely significant and absolutely life-changing. 
And so turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. As we look at verses 1 through 11. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and one of our ushers will get you a Bible. Just raise your hand and they'll put one in your hand. John chapter 15. Uh, To set the context of this passage of John 15, in John chapters 13 and 14, Jesus had been with his disciples in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. And in John chapter 15, Jesus and his disciples, except Judas, who had already left to turn Jesus into the authorities, they all leave the upper room. And if you look at John chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus says, rise and let us go from here. So Jesus and his 11 are beginning to make a transition, a movement from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, I'm guessing that as they make this transition, as they begin to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus and his disciples pass through a vineyard, and Jesus uses that moment, that very intense moment, to share some final and incredibly important truths with his disciples before his death. And oftentimes, the last words before a person's death are the most significant and the most important, and That was true in this case. And so Jesus uses this metaphor of of a vineyard as he walks through this vineyard, I I suspect. Follow along with me as I read from John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. And Jesus says to his disciples on that night, as he makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The critical issue here is verse 8. Look at that again. So prove to be my disciples, Jesus says. In these 11 verses... Jesus is laying out the evidences of a genuine, authentic disciple, which is the normal pattern of life for those who would call themselves followers of his. And so what does that look like? First, genuine disciples produce fruitfulness. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus identifies himself as the genuine vine, the, the only source of spiritual life and vitality, the only source Not just one of many, but the only source of genuine, true spiritual vitality. He's the one responsible for the fruit, which we as Christians bear only as we are rightly connected to the vine. We can't produce fruit apart from the vine. God the Father 
in these verses is pictured here as, as the act of the, the faithful gardener overseeing and, and working his vineyard. We read in verse 2, Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Or if you have the NIV translation, it says he cuts off every branch in me. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, these aren't easy words. And there's been a lot of theological debate and wrestling over the sense of the meaning of this verse and these words. Now, Jesus' words here are very direct. And the words really cut in in two different ways. Sort of a good news, bad news thing as you look at verse 2. And so let's, uh, let's begin with the bad news so we can then end with the good news here, okay? Um, the negative side of things. I mean, Jesus says in verse 2, look at it, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I, I mean, the every branch of mine makes it sound like this is a person that is in relationship with Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like it. And then they lose that relationship. Now, you can certainly understand how from this particular verse, that conclusion could be made. There are some who would say that this is a person who is at one time a a genuine disciple. Who can then lose that status if they stop bearing fruit. In other words, they, they would assert that you can lose your salvation. You can lose it based upon the evidence of fruitfulness or lack of fruitfulness in their lives. I mean, a plain reading of that is what we could conclude. The problem, of course, and there is a problem here, you want to be very careful trying to develop theological truth from a metaphor, and we have a metaphor that's being presented here. But the problem, of course, is that this interpretation contradicts other clear teachings of Jesus. I mean, if we go back several chapters to John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says very clearly, very directly there, he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one... No one, he says, is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Very clear, very direct, very solid in what Jesus is saying there. This describes salvation. Not something that we have to keep earning, but rather it is salvation as a gift from God given to us. It's a permanent gift that no one, including ourselves, can somehow lose. See, I would argue that this is the consistent teaching of the entire New Testament concerning salvation. It is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2. It's a verse that you've heard around here many times. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. So that no one can boast. So that we can't take credit for what we have done. We cannot earn salvation... And if we cannot earn it based upon our behavior or based upon fruitfulness or lack of fruitfulness, how can we lose it based upon that behavior or lack of behavior? Now, we believe around here in the authority of Scripture. Amen? Absolutely. 
And so when we come to a passage like this, we must look at it with the backdrop of all other passages of Scripture. That's how we interpret Scripture. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. We interpret what we're not quite sure of by what we do know for sure. And I believe that Jesus is saying here that because God is absolutely committed to the certainty of our fruitfulness, the absolute certainty of our fruitfulness as a disciple of His, as a child of His, and there is someone who claims to be a disciple, somebody who claims to be a Christian, claims to be a follower, but gives no evidence, none whatsoever, of any fruit in their lives, that person was never a genuine disciple. Now you see, a faith that saves is a faith that changes. And a faith that changes is a faith that produces fruitfulness because you are connected to the vine. And the fruit cannot produce fruit on its own. It has to come as a result of genuine connection to the vine. Jesus is saying here in this passage of Scripture that fruitfulness in a disciple's life is the defining characteristic of a disciple's life. So if there is no evidence of fruitfulness in a person's life, they have no relationship with Jesus. They may look like a branch. They may smell like a branch. They attend church. They may have all sorts of Christian friends. Know a bunch of Bible stories and verses. For all intents and purposes, they look like they are connected to the vine. I mean, Judas Iscariot gave the appearance of being a branch. A good branch, I think. He had his issues along the way as he was identified as one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He gave the appearance of being connected to Jesus, a disciple of his, but we all know he really wasn't. I don't know that anybody would argue with that. There came a point in time that he was taken away. Or look at verse 6 of John 15. It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and they're burned. I mean, Judas gave the appearance of being a branch, but he really wasn't. And his supposed connection to Jesus was what I would call sort of an organizational kind of connectedness. He was attached to Jesus organizationally. Um, he had the appearance of being a branch. Where it needed to really be an organic attachment to Jesus. It needed to be organic attachment to him. You see, a life-giving attachment to Jesus, where he was drawing his life, sustenance, and energy from the vine, but Judas was never really attached to the vine. During my 29, almost 30 years of full-time vocational ministry, I've come across many people who have claimed to be Christians, who've claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, and some who are actively involved in some ministry, and yet they were the biggest jerks you'd ever met. 
I mean, they were arrogant. They were rude. They were abrasive. They were hateful. They lacked integrity. And from my perspective, and this is my perspective, there was no visible indication of fruit in their lives. Oh, they were playing some games, and they were doing real good at playing those games, but there was what appeared to be no genuine fruit from their lives. There was no humility. There seemed to be no repentance. There seemed to be no love. And I'm not at all certain that these people were even Christians, disciples. But thankfully, that's not my call. It's not. Nor is it your call. You see, Jesus' words here really are not an encouragement for us to go around to determine who is a genuine Christ follower and and who is not. But having said that, let's not miss the importance of the application here. It's not about us evaluating everybody else and the fruitfulness or lack of fruitfulness in our lives. It's about us evaluating ourselves. Is there evidence in your life? My life? Of real spiritual fruit? I'm not talking about external behaviors like church attendance, knowledge of the Bible. I mean, the Pharisees, Sadducees excelled at those things. They even tithed and gave money. They, they looked good from the outside. But they missed the transforming work of the gospel that changes from the inside out. There was no fruitfulness in their lives. Oh, there was some stuff that came as a result of their activity and the life that they lived as, as Pharisees and Sadducees because they were playing the religious game, but there was no substantive fruit. There was no real, genuine, life-giving fruit that came from their lives. You see, Jesus is talking about an internal work. And the question is, is there internal evidence, a real work in our souls of a real hunger for Jesus Christ? Or are we just playing the game of church? Is there evidence of genuine brokenness over sin? Is there evidence of sincere love for others? Not perfection, but a sincere evidence of some of these things. If not, don't presume that you are in relationship with God because you do some religious things and know all the right answers. What I would do here this morning is I would strongly encourage you to examine your own heart to make sure that you're truly in Christ, that you are truly connected to the vine. Now, I know that in this room there are probably some very sensitive souls who will hear some of these words and you will immediately say, that's me. That's me. I haven't been growing like I should. I I know I should be doing more. And and usually that kind of a humble response, that I should be doing more, I really want more, indicates that you really are in a relationship with Him. Because otherwise you wouldn't be hungering for something like that. I would worry more about the person who is sitting here this morning, so confident about being in God's family because of how wonderful or how zealous they are, how knowledgeable they are, how much they have done for God. And that's the person who should be concerned. The Pharisees thought they were in the fold because of all that they did, all that they were doing. But they weren't. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you following along here? Well, enough of the bad news. Check your heart. 
See where you genuinely stand. Make sure that your basis of belief and confidence of your relationship with Jesus Christ is not based upon what you do, but who you are in connection to who he is. So enough of the bad news. Let's go on to some of the good news. Want some good news? Let's get some good news. The good news is, if you are a genuine disciple of his, you will bear fruit. Not you might, but you will bear fruit. God is committed to making this happen. He is committed to bringing about positive change and significant transformation in your life so that you can be the person that you truly were designed and desired to be. I mean, it's very easy to jump into the issue of what I must do, what I must work at. It's like, get me a list so I know how to get this type of fruit in my life. And we miss a foundational element here in John chapter 15. I mean, Jesus is obviously at the center of it. He's the vine. In the process of fruit bearing, he's the one who is actively providing the resources for this change in our lives. He tells us also that the Father is the gardener who is also actively working to increase the fruit in our lives. God is actively involved in the process. He is absolutely committed to changing your life if you are connected to Him. If you are a son or a daughter of His. He is committed to bringing about change. And it's change from the inside out. We read in verse 16 of John chapter 15, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that what? That you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. God is committed to producing fruitfulness in your life. You see, Jesus is the one who is initiating the spiritual growth of the vine. He even says, He appointed us to bear fruit. And this word speaks of an authoritative decision that God has already made that you will bear fruit as a genuine disciple of his. It's not a question of if, but that you will. He's chosen you for this, to bear fruit in your life. Now, I want all of us to hear this very clearly this morning. If you are a disciple of his, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, God is absolutely committed to and he is involved in your spiritual growth. In seeing the life of Jesus Christ flow through you, bringing the transformation that you most deeply long for. And that's the good news. God is committed to seeing change taking place in your heart and in your life. Jesus uses this term, bear fruit, six times in these 11 verses. He's talking about spiritual growth or vitality of those who would call themselves his followers. So what does Jesus say about fruitfulness? You're probably going, Ken, I was hoping you were going to get to that. Because I want to know what you're talking about here. Well, he asserts here the certainty of fruitfulness for anyone who is a disciple of, of his And Jesus makes it extremely clear that bearing fruit is the distinguishing characteristic of a disciple of his. Look at verse 8 again. By this my Father is glorified, how that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Well, according to Jesus, this is what distinguishes a disciple from everyone else. He or she bears fruit. There is tangible, tangible evidence in their lives of their relationship with and their love for Jesus Christ. 
I mean, by its very definition and in the physical realm, we know that fruit is evident and usually easy to recognize when we see it. Now, some fruit is more apparent than others. I mean, it's easier to spot a grapefruit on a tree than it is a blueberry on a bush. Okay? But there's fruit. And so Jesus is saying that a genuine disciple will give tangible evidence of the relationship with him. There will be some fruit. It may at times be very visible, but there will be times that it's not as visible, but but there's fruit. Now, Jesus here doesn't specifically describe the nature of the fruit. He doesn't. Because it's more about the character of a person than the work or the activity that person accomplishes. You get that? Jesus never goes about and he goes, okay guys, this is the night before I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be gone. The Holy Spirit's going to come. But here are the six things that you need to do in order to be fruitful in your life. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. And so the question is, what's the fruit? Well, I think the Apostle Paul gives us an idea of that fruit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit... Duh, okay? But the fruit of the Spirit is what? It is love, joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are some of the evidences, the fruit of God's activity in our lives. This is what shows whether or not we are his disciple. Not how many people we've witnessed to this last week, which is all good. Not how much money we've given, which is good. Not how many church services that we've attended, which is important and necessary. Or not how many times we have served the poor. Or how many Bible verses I've memorized. But are these qualities, in Galatians chapter 5, are these virtues, are these fruits seen in our lives as we live life and do those things? That's the point that Jesus was making here. Not that you have this long list of stuff, but that you have these character qualities in your life as you do those things. Because, you know, through practice and repetition, we can do a lot of great things that appear that they're God things. But if they're not couched in the context of a dynamic, connected life to Jesus Christ, we are absolutely nothing. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because Paul makes it very clear there that we can do a lot of good things. A lot of good things. But the most important thing is what's behind those things. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, now that would be a cool thing to be able to do. But have not love one of the fruits of the Spirit? What's he say? I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as... To remove mountains, but have not love. 
He says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And he goes on to describe love by not what it is, but why what it does or doesn't do. But you see, friends, the point here is that Jesus, in his final moments with his disciples, was laying the foundation for how they needed to live their life. And the evidences that they were hoping to see that would grow out of their connectedness to Jesus Christ. It's the fruits of the Spirit. And so God, as the active, faithful gardener overseeing his vineyard, is working to produce greater fruit in our lives. And he does that by how? By pruning. Verse 2. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more fruit. For a plant, pruning is never a pleasant experience. I've never had a plant tell me that, but I can imagine it's not a pleasant experience if you look at what sometimes is done for that plant. It's at times drastic and at times extreme. It's designed to shape and encourage new growth and fruitfulness. And for a follower of his, the pruning process by God in our lives is at times painful and is at times difficult. And in the midst of it, we often don't see any good coming out of it. We, we may look around and we may see all of the clippings of the pruned branches of our lives that are laying on the ground and we're asking ourselves the question, fruitfulness, wow, this is painful, doesn't feel good, hurts a lot. Why were these things cut off? Why is life so painful? Why is life so agonizing? But there is a reason. You have a faithful Father in heaven that delights in your fruitfulness. You have a Father in heaven that delights in your experiencing more and more of the transforming power of Jesus Christ in your life. Sometime in, sometimes in passionate love, He has to do some pruning in your life and mine, and often that pruning involves pain. Painful circumstances of some loss, some failure, some difficulty. The pain's the opportunity to see Jesus work. When I was diagnosed with leukemia last March and had to go through the the chemotherapy and all that other stuff, it wasn't pleasant. In fact, it was just downright awful at times. And anyone who's gone through something like that knows. But I would not go back. And I have to honestly say I would not go back and change that experience because of the lessons that I've learned and that I'm still learning. My view of life of death, of heaven, of God's healing power, provision and faithfulness, the faithfulness and love of family and friends have been incredible blessings and wonderful fruit-growing experiences in my life. And you can't go through an extreme pruning process and not be changed. I've seen Jesus work in my life in ways that I would not have seen him work if it were not for the pruning process. Was it pleasant? No. Necessary? Yes. Why? For fruitfulness, for his glory, and for his purposes. And the reality is, I know I'm in store for more pruning. As God continues to live his life in me and through me. And it's like, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Do what you need to do that you could be glorified in the midst of that. Now, I know there are some here this morning that are going through some real pruning in their lives. Sickness, tragedy, financial crisis, betrayal, loss of some kind. But please know that in the hands of a skillful, and I mean skillful, loving, 
Heavenly Father, the pruning that you are going through is His opportunity. It is your opportunity to deepen your dependence upon Him in ways that you would never have done so before if it weren't for the pruning process. One of the other great lessons that I've learned through my pruning process, and others have as well, is is what it means to abide in Him. And that leads us to the second evidence of a genuine, authentic disciple. A genuine disciple abides in Him. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. Abide in me, he says, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and they are burned. Notice the command that's given here in this first verse, this fourth verse. What's the command? The the command here is not to produce the fruit. It's not. The command here is to abide. That's the command we're given, to abide in Him. The command is not do this, 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 and this. The command is simply to abide. Now, when we are abiding in Him, truly abiding in Him... The natural outgrowth of abiding in Him is fruitfulness. Ten times in these 11 verses, Jesus says, abide. You think it's important? You think He's trying to say something to His disciples, to us? Ten times He says, abide. Can you sense the passion of His plea? His final words to His disciples, the plea there, He says, abide in Me. Jesus knows he's about to leave his friends, yet he's saying, you must remain in me, he says. Because Jesus knows that in the days and the years ahead, if these disciples and the disciples to follow, both you and me are going to grow spiritually and accomplish the Father's kingdom purposes in the Father's way, we need to stay connected to Jesus. But how do we typically approach spiritual growth, maturity, this Jesus thing? How do we typically do that? Give me a list, right? Tell me what I'm supposed to do. I mean, we instinctively begin there. You know, if you want to grow spiritually, you need to read this book, attend this conference, do this, do that. We want our lists. I want my lists. Because it reminds me that I can do it. Right? Because then I can check these things off and I can go, man, I've done all of these things and I'm good with God. And God is good with me. And Jesus is going, ah, not. It's not about list checking. It's about abiding. It's about abiding. That's why self-help books are so popular. I mean, we long for change in our lives. I long for change in my life. And we just want someone to tell us what we need to do to get there. And Jesus is saying, it's real simple. Abide in me. Abide in me. Jesus is not saying that if you are my disciple, here is this linear formula that will result in spiritual growth and fruitfulness. Not like that. So what does he say? He says, abide. That's it. Abide. His purpose is not that you will do more for him, but that you will choose to be more with him. As we say oftentimes, just let that settle. 
His purpose is not that you will do more for him, but that you will choose to be more with him. That's his heart's desire. To abide means to remain, to stay closely connected, to settle in for for the long term. That's what abiding is all about. Several years ago, before my father passed away, he was in the hospital for some prolonged periods of time up in Traverse City, Michigan. And when my schedule would allow, I would travel the eight hours by car to spend some time with him. And when Becky wasn't able to go with me, my son Drew would go with me for the eight hours there and then the eight hours back. And we did that quite a bit when my schedule allowed. And I remember asking Drew one time, I said, Drew, you don't mind spending that time in the car, do you? I mean, because he really looked forward to that. He goes, no. He said, I just like hanging out with you, Dad. And I'm going, that's abiding. I mean, we'd be in the car and he might take a book along with him and he'd read through a book and we wouldn't necessarily talk a whole lot at times, but we would just be there hanging out together. I mean, that's what abiding's all about. It's hanging out with Jesus. If we want to bear spiritual fruit and be fruitful in our lives, we can't focus on fruit bearing. Because that's going to come naturally as God works in us and transforms us. We need to focus on and concentrate on our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, these words may sound catastrophic. And they are. They really are if you are not genuinely connected to Jesus like Judas was. Catastrophic for Judas. Absolutely. He had all the outward appearances of being connected, but he wasn't truly abiding with Jesus. Or if we truly are connected to Jesus, but we're not abiding in him like we should then we're going to wither and die and become of no spiritual good. Either way, not abiding means that you will miss out, and it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Abiding means that we don't do it alone. Abiding means more of Him in our lives, more of Him in our activities, thoughts and desires. You see, we were created to be connected to our Creator. And when we are not, life is frustrating. It is shallow. It is without real significance. We need to be like David who in Psalm 42, 1 says, As the deer pants for the water's brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. In abiding, you seek, long for, thirst for, wait for, you see, you know, you love and respond to a person. Abiding is about moving beyond a sense of dutiful activities. To a living, flourishing relationship with your Creator. And when we are abiding in Him, there are incredible privileges and experiences that we have. First, prayers are answered. Look at verse 7. We read there, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Notice what is required for answers prayer. Abiding in Him and His word abiding in you. If you are abiding in Him and His Word is in you, then you understand His will and you are living in agreement with Him. And you will know what to ask for and what not to ask for. We just went through a 
a series of life-altering prayer. Prayer is not so much getting things from God as it is getting to know God. You get that? Prayer is not so much getting things from God because he knows what we need, what we want, what our hearts long for. Prayer is not so much getting things from God as it is getting to know him personally. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Experiencing answers to our prayers is one form of spiritual fruit. Bearing fruit. But it also means, secondly, that God is glorified. God is glorified. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, he says. The fruit that comes will clearly be from God, and it needs to be him that is glorified, not us. It must always be about reflecting his glory, his goodness. That's why we always say around here, it's not about us, it's about him. We want his name lifted up on high. We want to make him famous, not us famous. It's about returning back to him and acknowledging who he is and what he's doing. God is glorified. He is lifted up. He's given the praise. And when we abide in him, number three, life is motivated by love. It's motivated by love. Look at verses 9 and 10. We read there. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Life is motivated by love. When we are abiding in Him, we can experience the depth and the breadth of Jesus' love as much as Jesus experienced His Father's love. Now, I must admit that I cannot comprehend the extent of that love. I think in our fallen world, broken world, we can only experience a a small part of that. But the more I'm abiding in Him, the more I'm experiencing His love. And it's that love that motivates me to obey Him in every area of my life. If I truly, genuinely love, I do not want to disappoint. If I genuinely love, I don't want to disappoint. I don't. That's the the relationship that Jesus is talking about here. If you love me, you will obey me. So obedience to Jesus is not a big thing if you're genuinely in love with him. Well, fourth, we experience joy in abundance. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It may be full. You see, friends, joy comes in proportion to our abiding and obedience. Joy comes in proportion to abiding and obedience. Why is it that our life is sometimes so joyless? Because we're not abiding and we're not obeying. Joy is a byproduct of abiding in Jesus. It's not to be sought after. Which many of us do, but joy is an outgrowth of a personal, living, dynamic relationship with Jesus. It's the fruit of the Spirit that can't be produced, but is a byproduct of abiding in Jesus. Everything Jesus mentions here is rooted in this idea of Him being the vine and us being the branches. And so these are the things that We're cultivating, need to cultivate. A continued life of dependence upon Him. That's what these things are about. 
helping us cultivate this continual life of dependence upon him. And what's the result of that? We get to experience fruit bearing produced in our lives. As the worship team comes forward, let me challenge you to imagine this. Imagine the impact of this in terms of your level of discouragement that you may be walking through right now. Or in terms of your fears that you're struggling with right now. Or in terms of your struggles with sin that you're dealing with right now. Imagine in terms of your marriage, your overall attitude at work or your other relationships. Imagine the impact that if we lived every moment fully aware of the fact that we are continually connected and abiding to Jesus Christ, who is the source of life, the only source of life, not several sources of life, but the only source of life. Imagine, imagine the impact of that on your life, upon this community. That's the life that Jesus invites us to experience. Are you ready for that kind of a life? That's the kind of life that Jesus makes available and that he wants. Would you pray with me?